0: You hear these terms, startup, growth, scale, mature, Mm -hmm. they don't really have a lot of meaning outside of what we imbue them with. And I think a lot of times people make the mistake of being like, a startup is a company with less than 10 employees or under a million dollars in ARR and and kind of Mm -hmm. defining these things in these super rigid firmographic ways. And what Mm -hmm. our strategic narrative kind of came to was like, it's not really that. What it is, is changing go-to-market complexity, which can sometimes happen independently of these big milestones of like, oh, we just raised our Series A, whatever it is. And when I say go-to-market complexity, I mean like, how many products are you selling? How many channels are you selling them in? How many currencies do you sell your product in? There's this, as you kind of go up this maturity scale, your go-to-market complexity increases a lot. And so what we realized was, as you're traveling along this curve, and your go-to-market engine becomes more complex, you have these like strategic inflection points that you hit where it's like maybe it's the jump from one product to two, or maybe it's the jump from one channel to two channels. Maybe it's you're a historically sales-led company and now you wanna roll out a product-led motion. Mm-hmm. There's all these operational hiccups that would prevent you from being able to do that. So what Maxio really does is kind of help you get ahead of those inflection points and make sure that your backend operations are set up to support your go-to-market motion and your monetization strategy as you scale up.
1: You're listening to the Paris Talks Marketing Podcast, where we interview top marketing leaders at high growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. Our goal with this podcast is to cut through the fluff and jargon of digital marketing to reveal what's really working at some of the fastest growing, most successful SaaS companies today. The Paris Talks Marketing Podcast is sponsored by Hop Online, a performance growth marketing agency. If you like this episode and would like to have a similar conversation with someone at our agency, just go to hop.online, H-O-P.online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Paris Talks Marketing. Today, my guest is Andrea Wunderlich, and Andrea leads market intelligence and strategy for Maxio, a financial operations platform for B2B SaaS. She started her career as an SDR before transitioning into content and ultimately strategic marketing initiatives. Welcome to the show, Andrea.
0: Hi, thanks. Uh, Great to be here.
1: Great to have you. Would you please tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah. So... You know, I'm I'm with Maxio now, and we were just ch- chatting a little bit about this before we went live. But um, my title is Market Intelligence and Strategy, which is you know I think is a little purposely vague. Uh, I think of myself as kind of a pinch hitter, so. Wherever help is needed, I will go and kind of lend a hand, which has led me to be largely kind of project-based in the last year or so. But yeah, I started my career as an SDR. I've only ever worked for B2B SaaS companies, so I feel like I'm kind of part of a new generation of folks where that is true. Happy to talk to you about how I kind of landed in in SaaS to begin with. Um, It was a little bit random, (laughs)
1: Well, what happened?
0: So I went to school at the University of Georgia. They have a journalism program there. So I was actually in a journalism program, training to be a journalist, was always super interested in like writing and media. And I did like a few internships in college where I like went up to New York City and was doing the thing, grinding it out, working as a writer. And I quickly realized, oh, wow, I can't live here based on the salaries and it's just a tough place to live and to make it. So when I graduated from college, I think my biggest priority was a job that has good health insurance. And SAS was this industry that had great benefits. And I knew salaries were a little bit higher starting salaries than other industries. And I'm in Atlanta, which is kind of a weird Southern tech bubble. And so my first job out of school was at a company called Full Story, which is just rocketed like crazy. I joined when it was under a hundred employees. So it was still pretty mm-hmm. small and scrappy. And it was, it was a really fun time.
1: Can you tell me a bit about your SDR experience? Because I think a lot of marketers in SaaS and listeners on our show have quite a bit of experience on the marketing side, but an SDR does something quite different. And can you describe a bit your role as an SDR and how that might have helped you in any way in what you're doing now?
0: I started an SDR role because it was really the only truly entry-level role that's offered in, in most SaaS companies. So I didn't really have any particular desire to be in sales proper, but I was just like, hey, this is like an entry point to this world and like, let's just try it. It was hugely beneficial for a couple of reasons. First off, my first boss at like out of school was this awesome guy named Odie Bosa. Shout out Odie if you're listening to this or listen to it later. And he was just like the perfect person to like usher me into this industry and like really kind of give me a base baseline crash course and like how to be a professional and how to be thoughtful and strategic about your career development. And then the second piece of course is like the trial by fire kind of nature of being an SDR. There's no better way to learn an industry or this particular ICP or buyer personas than to have a quota and have to pick up the phone and dial 50, 100 times a day. So I think it was a great way to kind of learn the general lay of the land in SaaS to begin with. I think it's helped me a ton as a marketer just because there is that historical kind of tension between marketers and sales teams. But I find that it does buy me a little bit of credibility with sales teams I've worked with of, hey, I've, I've done it. Like I, 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 didn't, do... With them. Yeah, I didn't do mm-hmm. full cycle. I was not in a closing role, but arguably SDR is harder Than that. (laughs) But, you know, I was on the phone, I did the cold calling, so I get it. I think it's definitely helped me have a better relationship with the sales teams that I've worked with.
1: Yeah. And tell us a bit about your roles at SaaS Optics, but there's another brand called Maxio, which appears to be the new brand, the new umbrella brand that has merged SaaS Optics and chargeify together. Can you tell us before talking about the role, can you tell us a little bit about how these brands became one?
0: Yeah. So I think it was 2020. Battery Ventures made a growth equity investment in both SaaS Optics and chargeify which were kind of like similarly sized and similarly like aged companies in the same sort of sphere. SaaS Optics had like a little bit different of a core competency in their capabilities. And so did chargeify So the idea was like, if we merge them together, like, you know, one plus one equals three and, you know, we'll be able to better serve the market this way. So in the first uh, probably year or so was just like the merge of two companies, just the people coming together, the consolidating tech stacks, which is a huge deal. And then a little bit after that, we decided like, okay, we're going to do like a new brand entirely. So that's where the the Maxio brand came from. So it's one company, it's platform. We were, so we're now Maxio, we were previously SaaS Optics and Chargify.
1: Okay. I want to talk a bit, a bit about your content marketing background. And this was when it was only SaaS Optics, right? Yes. And can you describe a little bit your content marketing program? Because I'm always interested to hear when I interview content marketers, what kind of content were you publishing? How frequently, how much were you really embedding keyword research into that? And then how successful were you at driving that sweet organic traffic from your efforts?
0: Yes. So SaaS Optics was super unique in in the sense that so it was actually started in 2009 and it was started as actually more of like a lifestyle business. And they had this blog, which was called SASpedia. And basically it was uh, these guys who were multi-time founders of SAS companies who were like, hey, like SAS metrics are like the wild, wild west. Like nobody knows how these things are defined or calculated. There's no governing body that presides over it. And so they just started this blog. They called it SASpedia. And it was just what it sounds like, like ARR, MRR. CAC, LTV, like mm-hmm. what do these things mean? How do you calculate them? What are some tacit examples? And SAS Optics, the platform, was actually birthed out of that more organic kind of content play. Mm-hmm. But what I was super lucky coming in as a first-time content marketer is I inherited this SEO gold mine because this this SAS the blog had been around for like 10 years. And mm-hmm. still to this day, like if you go Google ARR, SAS Optics SASPedia ARR entry will come up as the first or second result on Google. It's genius. And that wasn't even the initial intention. It was just like, oh, yeah. wow, we put out this asset to be helpful to people. And then it just paid off in spades down the road because for many years, SAS Optics, their primary flow of traffic and demo requests was coming in from that SASPedia resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just uh, checked
1: ARR and you all, at least from where I'm sitting, ranked number two, it's SAS optics is number two for the ARR definition. Yeah, awesome. I think one we've method. gone back
0: and forth between number one and number two, like over the years. But yeah, it's pretty, it's fascinating. So I came in, I was like happy with where we were at from an SEO perspective. I was like, as long as we keep updating these core set of pages, and Mm -hmm. it wasn't a situation of like, oh, let's go add infinite numbers of pages to this resource. It was like, let's just continue to keep it updated and keep it fresh over time. And then Google Mm -hmm. will just do its thing. And that'll be an always on kind of organic play for us. Yeah. So I started thinking about um, and at the time, this is 2020, I think the the Great Gate or Ungate debate hadn't quite taken off like it has now. And so my goal at the time was like how do we create a steady stream of gated content that our audience will actually be interested in? And one of the things that's interesting about SaaS Optics is the kind of finance persona is the main persona. It's very mm. different marketing to finance people than it is marketing to marketers or marketing mm. to salespeople who are natural social beings, naturally interested in more thought leadership content. What I found when I was you know, interviewing and talking to our finance customers was, They really just wanted things that helped them get things done. So tools, like very practical how-to type content. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great. So we built a couple of calculators in Excel, threw those up on the website behind a gate. And that was another stream of always-on form submissions for a couple of key calculator resources that we had built Mm -hmm. out at the time. So then the third piece is like, there's the stuff that we got to do to keep the lights on. And then there's like the fun stuff. And then, so once we had the SEO stuff down, once we had a steady stream of gated content, which we were actually publishing new assets about every six weeks. And, you know, promoting those through paid channels as well. That's when I turned my attention to like, where can we have fun and like infuse a little more personality into this brand that's been a little bit more formal previously. So we launched a YouTube video series called Ask Clayton Anything, which is Clayton Whitfield is one of the founders of SAS Optics. And basically it was a video version of SaaSpedia where we would just say, hey, Clayton, what's the definition of ARR? And he would rattle off, give his definition. And we did some really fun video treatments and lower thirds and music to go with it and we started publishing those on YouTube. Well, that ended up being another great organic play for us because obviously YouTube is the second biggest search engine in the world. so people mm-hmm. would be looking up sure. ARR and then they would go straight to our Ask Claytone YouTube videos.:
1: That's great. I want to talk a bit about the metrics because you were at the forefront of defining the key success metrics and KPIs for B2B SaaS. And today where we sit now, what do you think are the most important KPIs for a SaaS company?
0: Oh, gosh. Okay. I, first, I got to say, i definitely not at the forefront of defining. I inherited a resource where pe- experts were already thinking and talking about this, and then they just passed it off to me to maintain over time to make this better. In terms of SaaS metrics, it's something I think about and talk about a ton, but I just want a couch of like, I am no metrics expert I talk to a ton of metrics experts. I have good relationships with like Ray Reich over at RevOps Squared, who's deeply passionate about SaaS metrics. Todd Gardner, previously from SaaS Capital, is deeply passionate about SaaS metrics. And so I think anything that I know about SaaS metrics is just secondhand wisdom that, these, that I've gained from these people. I will say something I've noticed a trend in the industry is um, as we're going through this uncertain macroeconomic environment. The net new ARR growth is always important, but it's taken a little bit of a backseat to some retention and like efficiency metrics. So net dollar retention is the one that I've seen thrown around as extremely important right now. But mm-hmm. I think it just depends on what's happening in the market, right? We're in a situation where during the pandemic, capital was free and people were just giving out money, and it seemed like the good times would never stop. And mm-hmm. so, net new ARR growth was definitely a metric that you wanted to focus on, and you weren't worried about extending your runway or growing efficiently. You were just worried about growing as fast as you could. Mm-hmm. Now that you know interest rates are rising, macroeconomic events uncertain, and PEs are a little bit more conservative with their cash right now, that's where you're seeing that focus on let's extend the runway, let's grow efficiently and let's let's champion metrics like LTV and our retention numbers and our net dollar retention in particular. But I think it'll switch again. You know, I think it, it would be no. a mistake for companies to reorient themselves around these new metrics knowing that once we're out of this cycle of, you know, economic uncertainty, it'll be back to ARR as the net new I, ARR as the forefront.
1: Yeah. And for a new, relatively newer startup SaaS company, and there's so many out there, let's say they're around seed stage or maybe series A, but they don't even have enough history to know what their LTV is because the most of their customer cohorts haven't aged long enough to reach their full lifespan. Right. I agree with you on LTV, and we look a lot with our SaaS clients, we look a lot at the ratio between LTV and CAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, although a large number of them Simply can't know LTV because they're in year two or something, or maybe even earlier. What could substitute for an LTV ratio that could still signal that this is a promising startup with a bright future and and a health, healthy metric?
0: You know, I think you're exactly right. When you're at that seed stage, you really need to be investing in growth, kind of no matter what the macroeconomic situation is, because, like you said, it's you're being conservative in that stage is not going to get you to the next stage. So I think that there is a sense of which, even though you may be getting some pressure from investors or being scared by the doom and gloom reports that are coming out of the big venture funds, you have to spend money to make money, right? So I think that if you're seed stage company, you should be focused on net new ARR and focused on product market fit and really finding the right fit. I would say that's Maybe that's one thing that you could focus on if you're early stage and, you know, you're not necessarily thinking about CAC or LTV or efficiency metrics. But what you can do is take a very methodical approach to achieving product market fit figuring out what are the, the, you know, ideal customer profile, what segment of the market are they in, what is their profile, you know, like in addition to things that are firmographic or employee count, like deeply understand the problems that you're solving for those people and figure out what your win rate in that, you know, narrowly defined ICP is, and then invest everything in continuing to get more customers that look like them. I think that's, that's where I would put the focus if I was the founder of a seed stage company. Yeah. And
1: right now with with SaaS Optics and now with, uh, with Maxio, what do you spend most of your time working on in this market intelligence role? What, what are your top priorities in a typical week?
0: Oh, good question. So when I came back to SaaS Optics now Maxio, my team had done all the hard work of bringing together the two disparate teams under one family and really getting good alignment. And then also they had engaged, you know, an external brand agency to help with the naming and the visual identity of the new brand. All of that work had been done. And I kind of came back and was like, great, we've got a new brand, a new logo, a new everything. I think what... They still needed some help with which is something that I stepped in and, and kind of led or, or orchestrated was an exercise around strategic narrative I and mean, if you're familiar with that term from Andy Raskin it's like kind of crazy, but what's the strategic narrative the way I think of it is like what is the story about how what we're doing here matters to the broader market with or without us or our competitors like this is a phenomenon that would be happening so what's the kind of like narrative that we can shape around that that needed fine tuning. I think we had a good sense of it for Chargeify and a good sense of it for SaaS Optics. But when we combined SaaS Optics and Chargeify into Maxio, what we found is it really wasn't one plus one equals two. It was like, we have this new platform that will potentially, we've got new use cases that it solves for. We may have like a slightly different audience than what our two legacy brands audiences were and really thinking strategically about who do we serve? What are the problems that they have? And how can we position ourselves as the means by which these folks can achieve their kind of next stage of company growth? So I led a pretty intense like, workshop around strategic narrative. And we had a good timing because Maxio got a new CEO. This happened in the summertime. And if you're a fan of Raskin's work or follow him on LinkedIn, he'll always say strategic narrative needs to be owned by the CEO. So I felt very fortunate that Okay, we have this new CEO who's coming in. He had a marketing background. So I was very thankful for that. I kind of pitched him in the first week he was here. I was like, Hey, I think we should run this strategic narrative exercise. Now that you're here, and you're getting to know the rest of like our executive leadership team, let's get together and and figure out the story. And he was super receptive to that and was excited about it. And so I would say like I really created a framework and created the guardrails for framing up and forcing these conversations to happen. But really it was, you know, it was Randy, as our CEO. It was all the executives around the table, all the key stakeholders around the table who were defining how this narrative was going to shape up. Mm -hmm. So this was a long process. This is several months, a lot of back and forth, a lot of revisions, a lot of external validation and feedback on what we had. And then we rolled it out to the team and everyone's pumped. Everyone's feeling good about it. And then we're like, okay, now what? (laughs) And especially me, right? I was like, I came here to do this project and I did it. And it was, you know, five or six months of work. Where do I go now? And so that kind of teed up. Now that we have this narrative, how are we going to translate it into positioning and messaging and more tacit things that our go-to-market team needs? So that's what where I've been spending a lot of my focus is translating that narrative into all these subsequent kind of like pieces of the messaging pie. And then right now... The big focus on enabling the rest of the team on it, which is a whole other beast, a whole skill art in and of itself is enablement. In a
1: nutshell, can you share with us what is the new strategic narrative for Max? Yeah.
0: So it's basically this idea about company growth, right? We have this thing that's called the the B2B SaaS maturity curve. And it's like, Mm -hmm. what is going on at these different company stages? You hear these terms, startup growth, scale, mature. Mm -hmm. They don't really have a lot of meaning outside of what we imbue them with. And I think a lot of times people make the mistake of being like, a startup is a company with less than 10 employees or under a million dollars in ARR and and kind of Mm -hmm. defining these things in these super rigid firmographic ways. And what Mm -hmm. our strategic narrative kind of came to was like, it's not not really that. What it is, is changing go-to-market complexity, which can sometimes happen independently of these big milestones of like, oh, we just raised our Series A, whatever it is. And when I say go-to-market complexity, I mean like, how many products are you selling? How many channels are you selling them in? How many currencies do you sell your your product in? There's this, as you kind of go up this maturity scale, your go-to-market complexity increases a lot. And so what, you know, what Maxio does is, is billing and financial operations. So how do you like actually oil your go-to-market machine in terms of like billing customers, collecting cash, accounting for all of that stuff on the back end, feeding that into some kind of insights engine around SaaS metrics and company performance. And the real difference is the go-to-market complexity. And so what we realized was as you're traveling along this curve and your go-to-market engine becomes more complex you have these like strategic inflection points that you hit where it's like maybe it's the jump from one product to two, or maybe it's the jump from one channel to two channels. Maybe it's you're a historically sales-led company and now you want to roll out a product-led motion. Mm. There's all these operational hiccups that would prevent you from being able to do that. So what Maxio really does is kind of get ahead, help you get ahead of those inflection points and make sure that your back-end operations are set up to support your go-to-market motion and your monetization strategy as you scale up and come
1: Very interesting. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. The Paris Talks marketing show is affiliated with Hop Online, a performance marketing agency focused on high-growth SaaS and other recurring revenue-based companies. If you like the flow of this conversation, you may want to consider jumping on a discovery call with someone at Hop Online. A discovery call is similar to my podcast interviews in a lot of ways. We'll get to know your business goals, competitive landscape, and marketing needs. And you'll almost certainly come away with some new ideas for how to accelerate your customer and revenue growth. If you're interested, go to hop.online, that's hop, H-O-P, dot, online, and book a discovery call with one of our strategists today. Now, back to the episode. I had a thought that, we say a lot of times in marketing that the customer journey is non-linear. So the classic funnel, in fact, it's still a good reference point, but it's non-linear. People don't spend a certain amount of time at the top of the funnel, then move to the middle, then move to the bottom, but they have a messy journey. And this kind of reminds me of the life cycle of a SaaS company isn't necessarily linear either. It's not years one, two, and three are a startup and then years four, five, and six are growth or whatever, what have you. Mm-hmm. I do like that you've reframed that around the complexity of their go-to-market. One of the transitions that I've seen a lot with SaaS companies is the move towards subscription-based recurring revenue model with subscriptions as opposed to previously selling one-off software and i know that a lot of a lot of saas companies start from day 1 with subscriptions but we've still seen a lot that are making that transition from one time billing to recurring billing and I, and that seems really complex and from a marketing standpoint you almost have to start over when you're trying to understand what is the what is the price sh- that we should pay to acquire a customer who will now instead of buying a $250 Piece of software, they'll start paying us ten dollars per month for we don't know how long. And how does your platform handle that transition? And have you ever dealt with uh, with that kind of transition within SaaS?
0: Yeah, I will say I've always worked for for B two B SaaS companies that had subscription models. So mm-hmm. you know I've I've seen a few different flavors of it. We definitely help companies who are going from one time to a recurring basis. I would say majority of the folks who come to us are already running subscription businesses. It's Mm -hmm. just that they are realizing how complicated that is when in practice, right? Because if you think about it, you say you're managing billing in a spreadsheet, which is a lot of people. They've got their spreadsheet and they've got QuickBooks. They've got a list of their customers, their contracts, subscriptions within the contract. And then they're trying to extrapolate, okay, this customer gets invoiced here, but the contract start date is here. It One, you lose your invoices because the spreadsheet is a nightmare to keep up with. So you're missing invoices, you're missing revenue opportunities. The second piece of that is around revenue recognition. So when you have a contract-based model and you are you know collecting cash for something up front ahead of delivering those services, you have to account in your accounting system for deferred revenue. That's not something QuickBooks can handle. So most mm-hmm. companies will do that in a spreadsheet. Again, once you start getting, you know, that that works for 10 customers. When once you get to 100 customers, your spreadsheet's broken. It's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that's when we see people come in on that like kind of subscription management. Like they need something to manage subscriptions. They need something to create these deferred revenue schedules for them on the accounting side. Mm-hmm. People will come to us. What's been interesting is recently we've seen a shift away from traditional subscription models or maybe in parallel to it. Where people are starting to layer on like usage or consumption models, which is totally different. And the way that you account for and report on usage is totally different than subscription. So this is like the next frontier, I think, for SaaS. Oh, yeah. these usage models or consumption-based models, or I heard some people call them variable models, which is probably the most inclusive term. And that's kind of what we're laser focused on at Maxio is we can support subscription businesses really, really well how can we build out our capabilities for these companies that are looking to expand into usage as well? Yeah, I've
1: seen some really interesting usage-based pricing models. I've heard them sometimes referred to more broadly as value-based pricing, but I think usage is a little bit more to the point. And it's really interesting because in many cases, it can unlock a lot more revenue, especially from the high usage customers that are getting a lot more value than what they have been paying for. So you all are still marketing to financial folks and i guess at some point they're getting off of spreadsheets what type what does the financial department look like in a b2b saas company at their various stages so before there's a cfo and i imagine there's probably not that type of a role until a few rounds of funding in who are the folks that you're trying to market to that are managing cash flow sending out those invoices and trying to keep up with all this recurring billings
0: it's a great question so i think Typically, what we'll see is like the early stage pre-series A, so those seed round companies, they're usually either their founder is doing the books themselves, or Mm -hmm. they'll have, they'll out do a FAO provider finance and accounting outsourcer. So think like a fractional CFO or just like basic bookkeeping services. So Generally speaking, it's an outsource function or some kind of combination of founder and outsource function at that seed round. Once you go to series A and you've had to raise your first institutional round of funding, there's a little bit higher scrutiny in terms of like how the books are kept. So from the basic example, when you're bookkeeping and you're small you're doing your accounting on a cash basis, but if you have a recurring revenue model, you need to be doing your accounting on an accrual basis. So that's usually a switch where founders are like, I don't know how to do that. And bookkeepers are like, I don't know how to do that because they're traditional bookkeepers and you know, they're bread and butter is QuickBooks, but they're like, wait, now we got to <laughs> convert our books to accrual. That's usually when companies will bring someone in, not necessarily a CFO, but like maybe they bring in an accountant like a CPA of some sort or they bring in maybe a head of finance or a director of finance or something who will look out for both the accounting and finance functions will roll up there. I would say it's it's much more of a you have accounting needs early on that will force you to change your behavior and then as you grow so say between your series A and your series B Series B is a little bit, it's a different pool of investors who have much higher levels of scrutiny that they're applying to. Not only your books from like you know, your finances, but also your SaaS metrics and your operating metrics and how those are calculated. That's usually mm-hmm. when you'll see people bring in like a CFO <laughs> who's going to run the show and help with yeah. those investor relations and stuff like that. Then when you get into you know C beyond, and this is very general, not everybody follows this path, but that's when you'll see like companies really start to build out an in-house finance function with multiple different roles. So they'll be on your accounting side, you'll have AR specialists, AP specialists. On the finance side, you'll have your head of finance or your CFO, and you'll have maybe an FP&A team that's specifically focused on forecasting and scenario planning for the future. And then you'll really have that robust in-house team.
1: You mentioned a couple of terms that I want to highlight for our audience accrual-based accounting and deferred revenue. Let me see if, if I can explain this and you'll correct me. Well, accrual-based, both related to the same thing, I believe, which is that SaaS companies should be matching their revenues with the period in which they are earned, not necessarily the period that they're collected. Is that basically the spirit of both deferred revenue and accrual-based accounting?
0: You know, as I understand it, as a non-CPA, it is. And I'm right. <laughs> just wait. Some CPA is going to be listening to this and it's like, ah! is not the way you say it but yes it's basically the idea that cash accounting is like when you think of mom and pop's general store you buy a candy bar and the person gives you the cash you collect the cash and that's when you recognize the money on your books like okay i got paid accrual is different because it's tied up with this idea of deferred revenue right where you may particularly think of in a subscription model, right? If you may have an annual subscription paid up front where you've collected the money, but you still have 12 months of services that you have to render. Mm -hmm. And so you can't recognize that revenue until you have met those performance obligations or you have done those services. So that
1: you can match the associated costs in each month with that revenue. Is that right?
0: So cost side is like its own beast. And there's guidance within the FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board on cost accounting. And that's kind of a different area that we don't necessarily play too much in. But generally, yes. So like you want to think about you want to match your cost and your revenue, right? So if you're rendering services over a 12-month period, you want to think about the cost to render those services over the same 12-month period that it's occurring.
1: Yeah. I'd like to pivot now over to, I've been checking out Maxio's website and I see that you've got primarily a sales led motion and most of the lead gen here appears to be get a demo. I might be missing it, but I don't see a free trial or any other type of uh, product led growth motion. Is that something that you all have considered internally or have any plans to start testing at some point and why now? Yeah,
0: it's a good question. I think it's something we're interested in for sure, but the reality is like subscription management, and billing software is not easily trialable. It's complicated. And our solution is something that does require like time and resources for proper implementation. So it is a little bit difficult to offer a trial. And so for that reason, we've kind of shied away from it is like the last thing we want to do is turn on a trial or a PLG motion to generate leads, but like not actually deliver from an experience standpoint, what mm-hmm. people need to get value or be able to make an informed decision about engaging with our sellers. So it's something that, you know, I think we, we've we got to tinker with, we got to figure out more of what would a trial environment or a test environment for our solution look like? And how can we make sure that we're delivering that all experience yeah. aside from just turning on another lead source.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think yeah, at some point you may be sacrificing too many of the core features and feeling like you're watering down the experience too much with a yeah. free trial or freemium. Certain SaaS companies, it's perfect. And I think the ones that are simpler and typically the the lower priced, it's easier to go PLG, but that I'm always interested to know from people that I interview, how they came to that decision. Are they, was it intentional or are they planning to do it in the future or there's a reason?
0: Yeah, I think it was intentional. I mean, we've always had historically sales led motion because like I said, it's complicated stuff, right? It's it's accounting, but you know, on the billing side, there are some opportunities we could explore for offering a PLG like, or a free trial option. But yeah, it's something, I I think that the Uber point is just like, it's something we want to be very intentional about instead of just like hopping on the train of like, well, everyone else is doing PLG for like additional lead capture. And Mm -hmm. we're like, well, it might not be the best fit for us. So we'll still think it through that.
1: You mentioned earlier in the first phase at SaaS Optics that you were helping to put together a lot of gated content and that led to things like calculators. Are you all still investing in gated content as a
0: strategy? Yeah. So it's one of those things where I think we still we're having this debate internally, like probably every marketing team on earth is do we Mm -hmm. gate or do we ungate? For now, I would say like we've shifted a lot, we're ungating a lot more stuff than we used to. But for these, specifically for these calculator resources that we know are like value add tools for people, mm-hmm. what we found is people don't really mind putting in their email address to get mm-hmm. that. I think it'd be something we would want to shift gears on if we were seeing really low conversions on the page, but mm-hmm. people seem to be okay with giving us their email address for these tools. So I think it's a balancing act of thinking about what is the offer? Like what are they getting? Mm-hmm. And it's is that worth giving your email address and known to us as a visitor? Yeah. And the other
1: side of the coin is ungating it, which means you offer it to everyone. You don't capture their email address. You also let Google index it. So you might have an SEO benefit of getting more traffic to it. And then you have to rely on those people I believe it's a little bit more of a brand awareness play. When you ungate something, I typically am in favor of ungating in general, but I think it's an earlier stage for that because it's if the win for ungated content, I believe, is brand awareness more than it is lead generation. But if you're at the stage where you think that they already have some awareness of your brand or of the specific solution or the problem that you solve, then they're willing to drop their email to get that solution. A calculator is something very useful. I'm surprised also at why. And I wonder a lot why more SaaS companies don't develop calculators because I think they're great lead gen assets
0: because I'll tell you why, because they're, they don't want to do the math in the spreadsheet. And I get it. Listen, Mm -hmm. I'm not a math person, obviously. But what I found is you can partner with your subject matter experts internally and externally to develop these calculator resources that may give your marketing team pause because it Mm -hmm. is a little bit daunting to put together, but you don't have to create marketing. Marketing doesn't have to create all the content that goes out there. Like we orchestrate it, we distribute it, but we don't have to create all of it, especially like we're marketing to, finance and accounting people. They don't want to hear from me. They want to hear from their peers and they want to get tools that were created by their peers. So we had a tool. we created an equity calculator in partnership with Todd Gardner. He did the hard work. We just distributed it and put both of our names on it. And it was a win-win for us. But I think that's my advice I would give people. If you want to make more tools, but you're afraid of developing it in-house because it's too resource intensive or you just don't have the expertise, you don't have to create everything in a box. You can lean on your partners and your internal subject matter experts to help you with this stuff.
1: Yeah. I'm curious to know, do you think that lifetime value can be predicted by how people are using the product? I mean, for your customers, are you calculating their lifetime value?
0: Yeah, I will say, I mean, it's a lot easier in a sales led motion, right? Because you have, we we have annual, most of our agreements are annual or multi-year agreements. So it is a little Mm. easier for us to say, yeah, we know when we get a new customer that they're probably going to be around for X many years. I think when you do have like more self-service or, you know, you have like month to month agreements or pay as you go Mm. a lot harder without just a plethora of historical trend data to to determine. It's about that monthly turn.
1: Well, Andrea, I would love to go on a lot longer and I'll have to have you back on the show. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up now.
0: I would say my parting note is a disclaimer that I am not a CPA and no no accounting terms heard from me should be taken literally. Like, like, like go to SASpedia and get the definition. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: um, but yes, uh, no, it was great because I,
1: I throw around very loosely a lot of terms here on this podcast. and
0: um, <laughs> I, that's a nice
1: disclaimer. A- and I should say that also at the beginning of every show. <laughs> Um, me is not necessarily uh, I'm not an expert <laughs> in any of this
0: Google before you proceed please um, yeah. yes but no I, it's just great conversation super super fun and engaging for me
1: thanks Andrea it was great talking to you and look forward to keeping in touch alright bye Paris bye another great episode in the books hope you enjoyed it if you want to get notified when future episodes drop be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player and to learn more about our growth marketing agency, visit hop.online. That's hop.hop.online. Have a great day.